Hail to you, Hopi, sprung from earth, come to nourish Egypt. Of secret ways, a darkness by day, to whom his followers sing. Who floods the fields that Ray has made, to nourish all who thirst. Let's drink the waterless desert, his dew descending from the sky. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about inundation. That's right, and we we opened there with a reading from the uh, 1975 translation from M. Uh, Lithium in Ancient Egyptian Literature, a book of readings, volume one, the Old and Middle Kingdoms. Um, and uh, this is referring to a particular deity who is associated with, but not the sole repre- representation or embodiment of the inundation, the annual flooding of the Nile. Right. So this would be the god, uh, we've been saying Hapi. He he is a god whose name in English is usually spelled H-A-P-Y. Uh, and I have not, I searched in vain to find a correct pronunciation for this name and could not, but I think it's Hapi. Yeah. Uh, and I think also Hapi sounds a little less like happy. <laughs> like I have a, an inclination to not want to call a god by the name Happy. But at the same time, as we'll discuss later on, like this is ultimately a very joyful deity. Everybody loves Hoppy. Uh, Hoppy is happy, uh, so it wouldn't be the, the the worst faux pas. Now, one thing I like about Hoppy is that Hoppy is the the god that embodies not uh, not just a physical geofact, not just an object in the world but a process within a geofact. So Hopi is not the god of the Nile, but the god of the seasonal cyclical flooding of the Nile. Right, or, or you can even get more specific in saying that he is, he is one of various gods that is tied up with the inundation. Uh, so depending on like what aspects of the inundation you're focusing on, uh, be it positive or negative or the origins, etc., there are different deities that can come into play. And it's, it's super fascinating to, to break it down because ultimately you're talking about something that, that, that was so central to ancient Egyptian life and therefore became so central to their, their worldview and cosmology, it makes sense that you would have a, a cast of deities as opposed to a single deity summing it up. Now, Rob, did you end up uh, thinking about doing an episode on the inundation of the Nile because of that earlier episode we did this year on the Tempest Stila? Um, I think it was uh, every time we've touched on something that involves ancient Egypt, I've been reminded that this is a great uh, episode idea, or at least I don't know if it's a great episode idea, but one that I was interested <laughs> in covering. Um, just because I was um, I was reading a book that I'm going to reference here in a bit. Uh, picked this up around Christmas, I think. Egyptian Mythology: A Guide to Gods, Goddesses, and Traditions of Ancient Egypt by Geraldine Pinch. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, part of it is encyclopedic. Encyclopedic part of it is um, more just an overview of Egyptian mythology and uh, and Egyptian history, uh, at least as as much as is necessary to understand the mythology. And um, and, and this author went into this a fair amount, and um, I just hadn't thought about it uh, in these terms before, or certainly in, the, in this much detail. And I thought well, yeah, this would be a fascinating topic to look at because not only is it a chance to sort of geek out on Egyptian 
Egyptian mythology and talk about um, you know ancient civilizations. But also, I feel like a, a, a trend that that we've found on the show before is anytime we take a particular mythology and analyze it and try and break it down. Like it, it helps us understand other mythologies more and it, it helps us understand sort of the whole human exercise itself a little better. And in this case, uh, I think we end up getting into some very interesting scientific territory as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and they're, they're actual, actually future episodes of stuff to blow your mind. We can do that kind of, um, launch off of some of the, the the broader themes that we end up exploring a little bit in this episode. So uh, we are going to be talking a, a bit about mythology here at the, at the top of the, the episode. And as we've discussed before on the show, there are numerous angles from which to approach a given culture's mythology. There are tales and traditions that emerge as a way of explaining the physical world, to explain the origins or the end of things, to tackle questions about life and death, and to ponder a great many contemplations of objective and subjective reality. Uh, they can provide a framework by which to interpret our lives, give our lives meaning, or to say, empower rulers and even to provide creative outlets and, and provide entertainment. So we don't want to leave anyone with the idea that there's just one way to interpret a myth and cosmology, one way to, to dissect it, one way to skin the cat, if you will, uh, nor do we want to limit the capacity for creativity and complex thought in ancient people. But without a doubt, uh, in, environment and place are one of the factors that influence the creation of a mythology. Because, of course, mountain gods don't emerge simply because the mountains exist. No, there has to be a connection of experience. Uh, and, and this uh, this made me uh, pick up a book I hadn't looked at in a while. I think I picked this up in, in college um, by Jonathan Z. Smith titled To Take Place. And in it, uh, Smith quotes uh, Alan Gusso, uh, uh, an environmental artist, uh, who said, quote, The catalyst that converts any physical location, any environment, if you will, into a place is the process of experiencing deeply. A place is a piece of the whole environment that has been claimed by feelings. Oh, yeah, I think that is so true. The world is full of natural environments, but within those natural environments are places. And what makes a place? A place is the, is the part of the environment that you remember and talk about. Yeah. So so on one level, you can go very specific with this. For instance, Smith's book deals primarily with ritual in relation to place, in particular constructed ritual environments. But you can also you can pull out, I think, and you can look at, at, at the bigger picture and you can look at something you know, like a great river, uh, large bodies of water, mountains, etc. And, you know, these you know, the mythology is full of of this relationship between humans and their and then the, and their environments. You know how how we feel about it, how we interact with it for sure, but then how we feel about it, what uh, hopes are tied up in it, what fears are tied up in it, the order, the chaos, and uh, and so a, a lot of that is very visible uh, in is going to be very visible in our uh, discussion about the Nile. So to kick things off, uh, let's just remind everybody a bit about Egypt and the Nile. Uh, so Egypt, the Egypt you know from a modern map, is located in the northeastern corner of Africa, but it's technically a transcontinental country because it is it's uh, it also includes a very southwestern corner of Asia that's connected by a land bridge formed by the Sinai Peninsula. There's a very long history of human civilization here. Rock carvings date back to roughly 10,000 BCE, though the pre-dynastic period, generally the earliest uh, Egyptian period discussed by historians, stretches from uh, 5500 to 3200 BCE. 
Now, for starters, as, as we did, we definitely mentioned in the uh, Tempestila episode uh, that also dealt with uh, with ancient Egypt, the northern portion of Egypt closest to the Mediterranean was thought of as lower Egypt, while upper Egypt is the region that is to the south. Uh, furthermore, we know the, the world, uh, the known world was much smaller to the ancient Egyptians. The full extent and size of Africa was unknown. And as Geraldine Pinch points out in her book, the, the known world for the ancient Egyptians in the third millennium extended roughly from modern Greece and Turkey in the north to Ethiopia in the south and from Libya or what is modern day Libya in the west to what is uh, currently Iraq in the east. Now, the defining characteristic of Egypt is, of course, uh, the, the mighty Nile River, which cuts through its center and empties through the Nile Delta into the Mediterranean Sea. The Nile itself uh, flowing north uh, out of its t- flows north out of its two primary tributaries, the Blue Nile and the White Nile. The Blue Nile stems from uh, Lake Tana in modern-day Ethiopia, and the White Nile stems from Lake Victoria further south on the borders of Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. It's worth noting that uh, Egypt itself gets extremely little rain. Some of, some of the northern areas I was reading get a little bit of rain every year, like maybe a few millimeters. But most of the country gets basically no rain at all on average. And yeah. uh, the, that's pretty interesting to consider, like being completely tied to a river or tributaries of that river for your only sources of water. There, There is almost, you can almost count on the fact that no rain is going to be coming down out of the sky. It's just the river or bust. But it's also interesting that while it has been that way for thousands of years, it was not always that way. That's right. If you go back uh, to, to the, 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 the truly ancient past, like uh, basically prehistoric uh, Egypt, um, you, you, go back, uh, you go back to this period of time and you know, for thousands of years, northern Egypt uh, and northern Africa in general had a wetter climate. Grasslands and animal populations stretched across areas that are now just complete desert. And the, 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 the life that you would find there, the animals, also included nomadic peoples who ranged across the grasslands, while, of course, still other humans enjoyed the rich environment along the coasts of the Great River. Yeah, and this damp period in ancient prehistoric Africa is one of the reasons that you can, for example, find uh, beautiful rock carvings at places, say, in the middle of the Sahara Desert that could not support human life today or not, uh, not a sustained sedentary life there today. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, th- these areas that are now desert were once um, uh, more, more filled with life, but then the land began to dry out, and that left the river as the, the, the main thing, really the only thing to cling to. And Pinch writes that this would have been a period of not only great uh, climatic change, but also cultural change, and that it might have helped shape the idea in Egyptian mythology that the world was once different. And of course, we see this in other cosmologies as well, the idea that there was a world world before, that there was a life before. Uh, but it's interesting to think of that, about that in terms of, of, uh, of climate change. Yeah, totally. So by the fourth millennium BCE, agricultural communities uh, you know, had certainly cropped up along the Nile. And uh, the, the resulting world of the ancient Egyptians was rather unique. So you had hostile deserts that were difficult to cross, 
that made up 90% of Egyptian territory, cutting them off from uh, uh, fr- from uh, from these uh, you know other uh, uh, lands to the east, west, and south, and also serving as a buffer zone between them. And uh, these lands, these uh, sort of empty lands, were called the Red Lands. Um, though uh, it's also worth noting that you have mountains uh, in some of the desert regions that did offer mineral wealth. So it wasn't just it wasn't simply a, a case of well, there's nothing out there. Uh, that can, that was of use to the Egyptians, uh, but certainly in terms of like the thing that gave you life on a daily basis, uh, that that was tied to the Nile. Uh, meanwhile, to the north, you had uh, where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean Sea. You have the vast salt marsh, and uh, and then of course uh, the Mediterranean itself. And Pinch notes that. The Egyptians were never enthusiastic seafarers, and uh, they're kind of a rarity in being one of the very few coastal cultures to worship no deities of the sea. Oh, that's, uh, so, so that's, that's interesting. interesting. I never thought of that before. Yeah, because I mean, you think about uh, certainly um, uh, you know, uh, Greek traditions. You know, you see the the mighty role that Poseidon plays, and not only Poseidon, but various other um, sea gods and goddesses, minor and major, that were uh, you know that 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 uh, were also uh, uh, worshipped, uh, and sometimes were worshipped in, you know, instead of Poseidon, and all kind of uh, are kind of caught up in the more or less canonized versions of uh, of Greek mythology that we have today. Well, in in uh, Greek and Roman mythology, I, I think you can absolutely see this duality of the ocean embodied in the gods and monsters that are associated with it, because the sea is a place of great opportunity, so it's often sort of associated with wealth somehow, but it is also a place of great danger, and, and it's temperamental, and it's unpredictable. Uh, you know, Poseidon is often just like the jerkiest of gods. Yeah. And so we're going to see a lot of that same duality in the ancient Egyptian treatment of the Nile because, I mean, a a river is not a docile thing, especially when you're talking about a great river like like the Nile, which is, uh, depending on how you're measuring it against the Amazon, it's either the longest river on Earth or like the second longest. It is it is undoubtedly a, a, a great river, uh, and which means it has great power uh, to both create and destroy. And key to that is the inundation. So the Nile is subject to this annual inundation that occurs between May and August, uh, caused by a combination of monsoon rains and melting snow in the mountains of Ethiopia. And as a result, the Nile River expands. The Nile River explodes. It floods low-lying lands in the Nile River Basin and the Nile Delta. Uh, Not only does it uh, water the lands, it also deposits a thick layer of silt. So as the waters recede, they leave behind rich and fertile soil that is ideal for agricultural use. Yeah, and this proves really important in things you'll later see, like the technology that the ancient Egyptians figured out in order to irrigate their crops, which involved... um, often ways of constructing dikes and canals and stuff where you would let in the waters of the flooding Nile as it comes in from the highlands. Uh, and and then you would just let that water sort of sit there and soak in the, in the irrigation ditches for a while before you'd eventually let it run back out into the river later on. And I think the idea there was not just that it would moisten the soil, but that you were, you were trying to give it time for the uh, the mineral rich silt that comes down from the highlands and the river to settle onto the bottom and and sort of uh, bring the vitamins I know they're not vitamins but the but the <laughs> minerals and uh, and uh, chemical riches of that soil to help put put the nutrients into the soil in your fields that your crops need. 
Yeah, the the, the link here to irrigation is, um, is is certainly worth noting because uh, with with the inundation, we're talking about natural irrigation, and this is this is where our you know our our, our ancestors' understanding of of what is would be possible with uh, with unnatural uh, irrigation, uh, man-made irrigation, uh, you know what they could do in terms of okay, well, you know we have this flooding that occurs, but what if we tried to control the flooding? And this is of course not a tale specific to um, to Egypt. We see this in uh, in in all the the the, the great uh, civilizations of old. You know the the importance of the floodplain, and then the the eventual technology that emerges in managing the waters in yeah. order. To to uh, enable agriculture to continue to flourish in a way that could be, you know, controlled. Oh, there are great Chinese myths about controlling the flow of rivers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is this is a, a trend, like like I referenced earlier. Like we could we could go from here and do a whole series of episodes, invention based episodes, just on um, irrigation technology because human history is is basically a a story of humans figuring out the best ways to manage their water supply. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I wanted to mention another aspect of the Nile, and I know you've got thoughts about this too, which is that uh, so we were saying that sometimes gods of the sea are kind of fickle, they're kind of unpredictable, they're, they, they can be dangerous at the same time that they can represent great wealth. You know, you, you can uh, the, the sea can be your livelihood, but also it can bring storms that crash you against the rocks. And the same thing can be very true of the Nile, but in a different way. So on the banks of the Nile, for, for the farmers and the crops that support Egyptian civilization, there would be this flooding season that would allow you to, to moisten your fields and nourish your crops. But if the flooding season fails in either direction, if the waters either do not climb high enough or if they climb too high, it's disaster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If it, yeah, if you, you don't get an, enough water, then you're not going to get enough flooding and you're not going to grow enough food. Um, if you get just the right amount, then it's perfect because you're going to get enough food to feed the entire population plus more. You know, that surplus that is uh, such a vital aspect of uh, of the rise and, and, and you know, su- and sustaining nature of civilizations. But then, yeah, if you get too much water, then it's overflowing the, the flood zones. Then it's destroying uh, uh, communities. It's drowning people. It's causing death and destruction. Yeah, and you saw this uh, this version of the calamity coming through in one interpretation of the situation that was being described in the Tempest Stila. Remember, there, there was this idea that the Nile is flooding for some reason, and it says that there are – well, there's one passage that I think was somewhat open to interpretation, but it sounded like it was talking about the bodies of dead people floating like skiffs of papyrus in the water. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, obviously, like if the waters come too high, it can destroy your towns. Yeah. So uh, uh, Pinch uh, nicely uh, summarizes this by saying, quote, the whole welfare of the country depended on this one phenomenon. Uh, And because of this, the ancient Egyptians seem to have uh, felt both uniquely blessed and uniquely vulnerable. And um, yeah, that's that's interesting to think about. Again, you see shades of this in in a a lot of mythologies, the the idea that uh, you're ultimately depending on on some sort of, uh, you know, natural um, ebb and flow that you do not control. There's a certain amount of chaos uh, to this system, even if there is uh, still some order that you can cling to. Now, um, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, there are multiple Egyptian gods and goddesses tied up 
with the inundation and ultimately with the Nile. Uh, so if you if you were ever read anywhere, if you see like a god or goddess uh, of the ancient Egyptian uh, uh, pantheon described as the god of the Nile, then that is that is an that is at least an oversimplification of things because there is no one true god of the Nile. There's no one uh, central god even of the inundation, but rather different divine beings that represent different parts of it, which which is uh, which ultimately I think makes a lot of sense. Because again, if this river and this uh, annual flooding is so central to life and your view of the, the, the of the universe, then it's going to be too they're too complicated to have one figure, one sort of uh, you know humanoid uh, uh, apparition summing it all up. Well, yes, and I think you can see ways in which the inundation, the yearly inundation of the Nile took up so much of the brain space of ancient Egyptian peoples that it becomes a central sort of metaphor for anything that is overwhelming or unpredictable or bringing great uh, great uh, riches or bringing, bringing great destruction. Uh, I was looking at a different part of Geraldine Pinch's uh, handbook on Egyptian mythology, and there's one part where she's talking about one of the stories of uh, the poisoning of the god Ray. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the story, I believe, is called The True Name of Ray. And uh, there, there's a part where she quotes from the from a translation of the text that said after he's been poisoned, the poison had overwhelmed his body like the inundation overwhelms everything in its path. So it's just th- this ready-made metaphor. It's the imagery that easily comes to mind whenever you're thinking about uh, any number of different dynamics. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that we depend so much on various technologies today as our, as, as our you know, to, to draw our metaphors from, to make sense of what we're doing and, and, uh, and the world we're living in. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I might compare it to the metaphor of like uh, the metaphors of the seasons in many other cultures that this, yeah. uh, the inundation metaphor could be as common and easily accessed when one is searching for something with which to compare the thing you're talking about right now to the way that we so easily reach for metaphors about winter turning into spring, you know, spring has oh, sprung yes. or something like now that. Now is the winter of our discontent. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you would say something more on the lines of now is the inundation uh, of our discontent or our content, depending on how it goes. It's inundation time in America. Uh, so, you know, we'll have more uh, on on the deities in a bit, but basically the inundation itself was seen as part of the divine order of things or or Mat, which is generally spelled M-A-A-T uh, in English. And the creator of all things, though ultimately there's less emphasis on this in ancient Egyptian mythology, uh, is the sun. Uh, you know, the, the ancient Egyptians were the children of the sun. And uh, the Egyptian world existed at the center uh, and in its uh, divine order, uh, you know, all-encompassing. And then surrounding it, you had the primeval waters of Nun, out of which the creator god emerged, and the Nile and the inundation extend out of the Nun. So they're flowing out of that as well. Yeah, and what you said reminds me of something else I was just reading about recently, uh, about the idea of primeval waters. One thing that's really interesting about a lot of mythic geography or cosmology around the world 
is the idea of waters that are beyond the mundane waters, you know, so you've got your rivers, lakes, and seas that are just sort of part of the world, but then there are waters beyond, and these could be beyond some kind of physical horizon or beyond some kind of like time or metaphysical horizon. Uh, so there, there are often waters that exist underneath the earth in some mythic cosmologies or waters that surround the continents or even waters that surround the sky. I mean, a lot of ancient peoples thought that the sky was somehow full of a flood. And you could easily see that, you know, when the, when the skies break open and it rains, that's water falling down from above. Yeah. Uh, but then also there are waters that uh, – there are tons of stories about waters that existed and flooded everything before the creation of the world. I was reading about this in the Encyclopedia of Creation Myths by the scholar David Leeming, who argues that no motif occurs more often in creation myths around the globe than that of primordial waters. It is the single most common theme of cosmic origin stories in all of human culture, uh, and that it's central to a number of different kinds of creation myths, like the creation out of chaos myths, the earth diver type creation myths. All of these have waters that existed before there were lands and and all of the you know living things on them and all of the order there there's some kind of previous time of an expanse of undifferentiated ocean and uh, so the question is like why are there so many creation myths involving this landless cosmic ocean before before the current order of the world and leeming actually has thoughts about why that is uh, so just to read from his entry here he says there are several reasons for the ubiquity of this motif all cultures naturally recognize water as a necessary source of life and survival making it a useful symbol of creative fertility Large masses of water are uncontrollable and therefore aptly representative of chaos. In tandem, these two symbolic functions lead us to the idea of potential as yet unformed creation. Oh, and he, and he also talks about the idea of uh, waters as traditionally often having uh, sort of a divine gender associations, like uh, waters in some ways being mythically associated with female qualities and having to do with uh, maternal waters and, and creation of the earth as a kind of birth. Uh, but the central idea is that water is necessary for every aspect of life, and yet the oceans are untamed and untamable, sort of chaos embodied. And this, it, these two things come together to create the, the ultimate human vision of a chaos of potential before the world we know. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that, yeah, we see that reflected here as well. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It's like when, whenever I picture the, the creation myth that says creation from the void or creation from chaos, I'm always picturing space. You know, my, my brain yeah. has been fed with science fiction. So I'm picturing inter, interplanetary interstellar space. Maybe I can see a star field in the background, but that wouldn't make sense because if it's supposed to be creation out of nothing or from chaos, there wouldn't be stars yet. That's some kind of order. It would just have to be space. Uh, but but really, maybe uh, to be more in the tradition of, of ancient human thinking, I should be picturing waters. Again, that's not true for every culture and every creation myth, but it's shockingly common. Yeah. So so again, in the in the Egyptian tradition, we have Nun, that, that's the primeval waters, and Nun feeds the Nile and the inundation. Um, and then on top of that, we also have the foreign lands and deserts that border Egypt, and these are realms of chaos or isfet. Uh, but um, 
again, the Nile was thought to flow from noon and therefore is the work of the creator God. And there are several different versions of the creator God. Uh, and specifically, the floodwaters were said to flow from the two secret caverns formed by the creator's sandals. Ooh. And so this is where we get into some of the, not all, but some of the, the major deities that are tied up with the, the Nile and specifically the, the inundation. So the creator god, Kinum, guards over these caverns, it said, and also could be thought to control the inundation. And he was uh, uh, often depicted as a human with the head of a long-horned ram and was said to have created human beings from the wet clay left over from the inundation. Thus, he's a god of, of pottery as well, kind of a god of creative technology. And like, a lot, like, like all gods and goddesses in, uh, in, in longstanding cultures, his exact role shifts over time. There's an evolution. There's there are changes. They, he's he's not a singular thing, but part of a tradition, like all of these uh, these entities. Uh, but he's associated ultimately not only with the creation of humans, but of technologies like boats, and also with the birthing of uh, of, of newborn gods and kings. So he is the god of the wheel as well, and this is this is beautiful as well. The god of the nocturnal sun. He is the soul of Ray passing through the underworld. Ooh, wow, the nocturnal sun. So that, right. that that's when they have the idea that the sun during the day goes through the sky and at night goes has to pass through down through yeah, yeah through the underworld. Okay, yeah. Again, we have to put our put our ourselves in the mindset of uh, of this kind of cosmology where there is only our world, there is only Egypt, and where the sun goes when it goes over the horizon, you know, it, it's it's going into darkness. It's going through this uh, this arduous journey uh, so that it might come back up again and light the world. Oh, God, I wish I could remember the details. Isn't there something about how in at least one version of the story, the sun is a barge that as it goes yep. under the ground at night, it gets attacked by the same monster every night and has to yeah, fend it's it off? Yeah, it's beset by by monstrous demons, and it's uh, it's like a, a group effort to fight off these monsters and protect uh, the sun so that it can come back up the next day. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, so, so that that's uh, one major deity, and then one of the other ones, of course, is is Hapi, who we talked about at the the, the top of the podcast, uh, the one that's often spelled like H A P Y. It, it looks a lot like Happy, and again, that's not completely off the mark because this god is the personification of the positive aspects of the inundation and is sometimes depicted as an obese green or blue man with pendulous breasts. Yeah, so sometimes you'll see him represented with uh, – they don't always look exactly like like organic human breasts. Like sometimes they look like a kind of strange like triangle coming out of his armpit, at least in some <laughs> of the illustrations I've seen. But I think they are supposed to be breasts. Yeah, and because ultimately he is nourishing. Um, though I, ha I have to admit like when, when I picture him in my mind, I, I imagine something like Max Rebo from um, – Return of the Jedi, you know, uh -huh. the, the keyboard player. Um, oh, because he's often got blue or green skin. Yeah. And also, yeah. I mean, Max Rebo has a very, um, you know, pleasant aura. He's, he's, he's happiness in good times. And thus is, is Hoppy. Uh, all humans sing hymns to him. The creatures rejoice So, uh, so when, when he's approaching. So he is the Lord of Fishes. He's the maker of grain. And he also plays a key role in the vital Egyptian myth of murdered Osiris uh, as the waters of inundation play a role in reviving him just as they revive the crops every year. 
But okay, so that's the this is the pleasant side, the beneficial side of the inundation. But of course, the inundation has this destructive side as well, this dark side, and it is personified by the distant goddess, um, which you can I guess you can kind of think it, in in Pinch's writing, it's kind of like this is the this is the goddess, but it is also kind of a broad categorization of goddess that is associated with different individual goddesses at times. Um, but basically, the idea uh, here is that. Um, uh, first of all, let's the distance thing again in the ancient Egyptian cosmology. Distance it probably means pushing you out into the desert and towards those kingdoms of chaos, and so that that is the place where the distant goddess is said to reside. Sometimes is depicted as having this terrible um, leonine form. She's you know kind of like some sort of giant lion, and and so she inhabits these lands. Uh, she is associated with with Ray or Rob. Uh, perhaps as a feminine aspect of him uh, or the soul eye, uh, but she becomes an uncontrollable and angry deity that therefore takes up in the chaotic land. So she's kind of like a shard of of the almighty sun god. You know, she's like a piece of him, uh, but she's gone rogue and is therefore a danger to the people of Egypt. Uh, though there are myths associated with her retrieval by Honorus, the, uh, the, the mythical hunter who brings the solar lion back to Egypt uh, to much rejoicing. So Pinch writes that the implication of the various distant goddess myths is that, quote, if the destructive anger of the solar eye is not balanced by the justice and truth personified by Mott, the world will slide into chaos. And again, different goddesses are associated with this role, uh, depending on the, uh, the exact account, including uh, uh, Bastet, Hathor and others. Now, again, there are multiple additional gods that factor into the inundation in one way or another. Um, and again, we have to remember the central role that it played in Egyptian life, all the sacred connotations it absorbed. Uh, we're not going to attempt to list them all here. Um, you can read about, about many of them in uh, Pinch's Egyptian mythology book if you want. There are also some other excellent uh, texts out there on, on uh, Egyptian deities. Uh, but there is one in particular I wanted to bring up, and that is uh, Hecat. Uh, this is a frog-headed goddess who plays a vital role in childbirth and the rebirth of the dead. So she's she's the, the divine midwife. Uh, so she's a follower of Hape and um, sometimes a female counter, counterpart of, uh, of, of, of Kidum and a frequent motif on ivory wands, which are these kind of boomerang-shaped pendant things uh, that were uh, that were used to protect women and children. Mm. Um, but Pliny the Elder actually wrote on some of this, talking about the, the frog motif, apparently commenting that the Egyptians thought that frogs spontaneously emerged from the mud left over by the inundation, which uh, is interesting because on one hand, of, of course, that, that's not exactly how it works, obviously. Mm -hmm. the, the mud of the inundation is not giving birth to the frogs, but... It, but but uh, but that flooding is what makes the reemergence of the frogs possible. You know, it is the the annual sustaining um, uh, flood. It is the it is the bringing of the water and the bringing of the nutrients that make life possible in Egypt. Yeah, that's really interesting. No, I wonder. I don't know if Pliny is correct in ascribing that belief to the ancient Egyptians. But right. if he is, but if he is correct. That would be in keeping with a lot of theories throughout history about the spontaneous generation of animals from certain types of especially damp sorts of conditions. Yeah. 
Now, one thing I was thinking about is that, of course, things are different in the Nile today uh, because of human technology. You know, in the 20th century, Egypt implemented a system of dams and reservoirs to control the flow of the Nile pretty much with with complete success now. Like the, the people of Egypt, of course, have been using various forms of dams and dikes and irrigation on the Nile for thousands of years. But with modern techniques and modern technology that were available in the 20th century, I, th- I think the real keystone here was the construction of the uh, Aswan High Dam under Nasser in the 1960s. Uh, following that, Egypt was essentially able to end its flooding cycle, like that it it could now store up excess water from the rainy season to be released in a controlled way even during the traditional dry season, which of course would just be a revolutionary change for the Egyptian people. Uh, but at the same time, I have to wonder, like in in mythological terms, does this represent a kind of deicide? Is this a slaying of Hopi? <laughs> um I, I, yeah, you could look at it that way, right? Like, the, the, like this is the tale of how humans finally um, conquer the gods. But on the other hand, you could say, well, um, you know, Kinom was the is kind of a god of technology as well as this god tied up with the inundation. So, you know, he's he's kind of present at the victory cel- celebration. So it's it's he's ultimately some of these entities are tied up in the same. Uh, the, the same tale. I mean, also, uh, Hoppe, in a way, he would be there, right? Because he's all about the good stuff that comes with the inundation. Um, and, uh, I mean, the story of modern technology is that the the, the negative connotations are, are never completely dispelled. So the distant goddess is never that distant. Well, maybe you could think about it now that, that Hoppe is just uh, embodied in the water that sits in the reservoir behind the dam and is just released gradually throughout the year. So instead of sending his blessings in an unpredictable way, his blessings can now be distributed in a very organized and orderly way. Instead of being a comedian or a music, uh, you know, a, a music star that, that uh, periodically appears at the casino, uh, Hoppy has a residency at right. the casino at this yes. point. So you can count on him being there. So I've got another thing I want to talk about, and this is going to take us into the realm of biochemistry, uh, because I was thinking about the cycles associated with the flooding of the Nile. And uh, this this led me to a really interesting article that was published uh, just a few months ago. It was in December of 2020, and it was a news feature for the journal Nature, written by Michael Marshall, that was called How the First Life on Earth Survived Its Biggest Threat, Water. Hmm. So uh, we've discussed this a bit on the show before, but obviously one of the biggest outstanding puzzles in all of the biological sciences is the origin of life on Earth. You know, assuming that the first living cells evolved from precursor chemicals somewhere in the early history of the planet, how did that happen? You know, what were the conditions that led to that? How common are those conditions and could they be replicated? So for a long time, the dominant thinking among biochemists has been that the earliest chemical precursors to life as we know it must have arisen in the ocean. This is the classic uh, primordial soup idea, right? Uh, That somehow in the ancient oceans, there would have been this swirling mix of organic molecules uh, of carbon-based chemistry, and that gradually those molecules would kind of come together and form the molecular building blocks of life. This was something that was uh, advocated by people like J.B.S. Haldane. 
And there are still some theories about life emerging, uh, but about the first precursors to Earth life emerging in parts of the ocean, for example, around deep hydrothermal fins. That's uh, one of the the versions of this theory that's still going today. But an alternative explanation has been really gaining some traction in recent years, um, because what seems absolutely clear is that you need water in order to put together the first building blocks of cells. So these building blocks would include things like DNA or RNA, which are information-carrying molecules, but then also things like proteins that can do the work of metabolism and life. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the ocean is the best place for the, those chemicals to come together. And Marshall in this article calls attention to the research of a scientist named John Sutherland, who is a biochemist at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology at Cambridge. Marshall writes, quote, Several studies suggest that the basic chemicals of life require ultraviolet radiation from sunlight to form, and that the watery environment had to become highly concentrated or even dry out completely at times. In laboratory experiments, Sutherland and other scientists have produced DNA, proteins, and other core components of cells by gently heating simple carbon-based chemicals, subjecting them to UV radiation, and intermittently drying them out. Chemists have not yet been able to synthesize such a wide range of biological molecules in conditions that mimic seawater. So in other words, if these studies are going in the right direction, uh, it may be evidence that the origins of life itself are not in the, the deep dark of the ocean, but in the cyclical flooding and drying out of something like a sun-baked puddle or stream bed on the surface of a continent. Wow. So in, in effect, we're talking about not the inundation, but a, a kind of primeval inundation. Yeah, I mean, this the seasonal flooding and drying out of yeah. it. I mean, the, the, the metaphorical connection to the Nile here is fascinating. Yeah. And in some ways, the similarities are not just like aesthetic or superficial. Like you could say that there are actually there are uh, there are there are significant similarities in the causal effects of of what's going on in these two cases. We'll get to more of that as I go on. Um, so not all biochemists agree with this direction, obviously. Uh, but Marshall writes that, quote, it offers a solution to a long recognized paradox that although water is essential for life, it is also destructive to life's core components. Uh, now, remember, you know, we, we talk on the show a lot about how water is an amazing chemical because it is a master solvent. It's a polar molecule with the terrible claws, you know, the, these two hydrogen claws that this molecule will dissolve almost anything. And the molecules necessary for life tend to break down over time when submerged in water. Marshall writes, quote, Proteins and nucleic acids, such as DNA and RNA, are vulnerable at their joints. Proteins are made of chains of amino acids, and nucleic acids are chains of nucleotides. If the chains are placed in water, it attacks the links and eventually breaks them. And he quotes the biochemist Robert Shapiro, who famously said that when you're talking about organic chemistry, quote, water is an enemy to be excluded as rigorously as possible. Which, which is so funny because, I mean, what we're normally thinking about when we're thinking about water and life is how necessary water is. And it right. is necessary, but uncontrolled inundation of water will destroy the very information and machinery necessary uh, to, that's underlying all life and all cells on Earth. 
Yeah, again, the very uh, duality that is summed up in, in, in these, uh, these, these deities that we just discussed here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you can see almost a kind of uh, like the irrigation systems and the systems of dams and dikes that are used to manage the Nile. That actually, there's something similar going on in our cells. Like the cells in organisms today keep very tight control on the movement of their water contents to prevent the water in their cytoplasm. The cytoplasm is the kind of gel that makes up the the the, the interior of a cell uh, to keep the water in their cytoplasm from harming the genetic material and proteins that it surrounds. Marshall in this article quotes a synthetic biologist from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis named Kate uh, Adamala, who says, quote, we are taught that cytoplasm is just a bag that holds everything and everything is swimming around. That is not true. Everything is incredibly scaffolded in cells and it's scaffolded in a gel, not a water bag. So cytoplasm is mostly made of water. I think it's something something like 80% water uh, by mass or something. But there are structural features in cells that keep the water from tearing up the important stuff. Again, kind of like the structures built around the Nile to manage its flooding. Yeah, yeah. So you can look at uh, the, the things that civilization does are ultimately, the, the, in many cases, the things that, the, uh, that are happening uh, just in life itself. Right. But of course, that's that's once we have the cells that have evolved today. Think about mm -hmm. how the first cells could have evolved when they didn't have those structures in place yet. Uh, so the implication is that if the earliest life arose in some kind of natural condition, you know, it didn't have cell structure to protect it yet, those natural conditions must have somehow placed limits on how and in what ways things got wet. And again, this brings us back to the idea of places that would intermittently flood and then dry out again. And the article goes on to cite some examples of recent studies supporting this idea. Uh, one example by a team, including that researcher mentioned earlier, John Sutherland, uh, the biochemist from Cambridge. Uh, this study is by Matthew W. Powner, Beatrice Gerland, and John D. Sutherland, published in Nature in 2009, called Synthesis of Activated Pyrimidine Ribonucleotides in Prebiotically Plausible Conditions. Uh, so basically what happened here is that uh, – and this is summarized by Marshall, but I, I trust his summary here. He says that the team managed to create two of the four nucleotides in RNA – uh, out of some simple chemical precursors. So this would be uh, phosphate and some carbon-based compounds. I think cyanide salts were an important part of it. Uh, so you just start with some chemicals in water. And then by dissolving those chemicals in the water to uh, down to a very high concentration, they were able to create two of these four nucleotides uh, by, by some reactions that mimic the kind of reactions that would take place in a pool or a stream of water that was drying out and concentrating while being exposed to sunlight, including UV radiation, and the UV radiation was important. And another study in 2015 uh, showed that researchers were, were able, via similar means, to create the precursors to proteins or lipids, and another study did the same to the constituents of DNA. Here's one I thought that was interesting. Uh, also, it references a, a uh, researcher who's close to us. So there's a biochemist named Moran Frinkel-Pinter at the NSF NASA Center for Chemical Evolution in Atlanta. And she and colleagues published an article in PNAS in 2019 
that argued, again, this is Marshall's summary, quote, it showed that amino acids spontaneously linked up to form protein-like chains if they were dried out. And those kinds of reaction were more likely to occur with the 20 amino acids found in proteins today compared with other amino acids. That means intermittent drying could help explain why life uses only those amino acids out of hundreds of possibilities. Yet again, so like if if this were the way that life on Earth first evolved, it would explain some chemical features of modern life that you might otherwise be able to see as just kind of random or contingent. Oh, wow. Another interesting finding about those wet-dry cycles. So several of the researchers that Marshall talks about in this article point to the importance, uh, again, of not just high concentrations of chemicals in a reducing pool of water, but the cycles, specifically repeated wet-dry cycles. It gets wet, it gets dry. It gets wet, it gets dry. And one cool example he brings up is research going back several decades by a couple of scientists who were at UC Davis at the time, uh, named David Deemer and Gail Barchfield. And they were studying the formation of lipids. Now, lipids are also long-chain molecules, like proteins, like DNA and RNA. And lipids generally do not dissolve in water. You know, of course, you know that oil and water don't mix. Well, oil is a lipid. Lipids include things like fatty acids and waxes. And cells make use of lipids to survive. Cells tend to have a protective membrane around them, the sac that holds everything inside. And this protective membrane that goes all around the outside is made in part of lipids. There's a thing on them called the lipid bilayer. Uh, and of course, cell membranes, they do a lot of things, but you can think of them mainly as a means of chemical control of what gets in and what gets out of a cell. They're almost in a way like putting a dam on a river, controlling the flow of materials rather than just letting a free flow in, in either direction. And so here again, this is Marshall's summary of the, the research by Deemer and Barchfeld, quote, they first made vesicles, spherical blobs with a watery core surrounded by two lipid layers. Then the researchers dried the vesicles, and the lipids reorganized into a multi-layered structure like a stack of pancakes. Strands of DNA previously floating in the water became trapped between the layers. When the researchers added water again, the vesicles reformed with DNA inside them. This was a step towards a simple cell. So you're beginning to see ways that, again, you know, it's not known that this is how it's happened, but very intriguing ways to imagine cells structurally coming together for the first time. If you've got chemical reactions in reducing concentrated water that are creating molecules like DNA or RNA, and then somehow that DNA or RNA is getting trapped inside layers of lipids, it can start to function like the cells we know today. Very cool. Yeah, I love it. It's the the, the, pri the primordial waters, uh, the the inundation, uh, all in one. Yeah, and and of course, again, the the, the key thing being these repeating wet dry cycles mm -hmm. as a means of getting the constituents of life uh, suspended inside protective lipid membranes. And uh, and uh, Marshall, of course, mentions a bunch of other stuff. Actually, there, there's subsequent research by Deemer and colleagues that has continued to drive this logic forward. There's also some cool stuff in this article about uh, ways that you could think about uh, uh, about wet and dry cycles as almost kind of uh, an evolutionary pressure on early chemical constituents of life by like repeatedly wetting them and drying them out. There was this process of uh, sort of winnowing out the weaker forms of molecules and 
allowing the more uh, robust types of life precursor molecules to to survive a kind of evolution before there's actually a cell, which is which is a pretty interesting possibility. Uh, but anyway, toward the end of the article, it starts talking about well, so specifically, what kind of situation are are these scientists really imagining, like where life could have arisen? And so several researchers mentioned different ideas. One is the idea of a partially flooded meteorite impact crater drying out in the sun, maybe with streams running into and out of it somehow, or perhaps a volcanic hot spring pool with wet and dry cycles at its edges. So yeah, I mean, th this goes against the, the traditional idea of the earliest life forms arising in the ocean, but I like this new image that it's almost the kind of like a tidal zone of a tiny ocean that may have been no bigger than a puddle, you know, the, the part of the rock surface that gets wet and then dries out in the sun and then gets wet again could be where the, the oldest of our ancestors came from. Wow. And then uh, the, the article also mentions a bunch of other studies. Uh, it comes back, uh, I think, to be even-handed with reasons for thinking that oceanic origins, particularly those around deep-sea hydrothermal vents, uh, could still be viable explanations, according to some other experts. There's even like one hypothesis about how you could potentially create wet-dry cycling in and around the rocks lining deep-sea vents. Uh, so the article as a whole is definitely worth a read. Uh, but then one last thing that's cool is he connects this strain of research to some of the goals of the Mars Perseverance rover around the Jezero crater on, on the surface of Mars, because it's going to be looking for possible signs of past or present life on Mars in similar wet, dry conditions. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that makes sense. So, yeah, in a, in a way, we are looking for the the possible um, uh, birth of 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 life, the birth of, uh, of of a new pantheon on Mars. Yeah. The recurring blessings of Hoppy on another planet. Yeah, space Hoppy. I love it, uh, and and I also love that, that we were able to you know to to begin by by talking about um, about mythology and um, and irrigation and and get into these uh, these questions about life itself that ultimately kind of loop back around into the mythological you know yeah uh, areas that are, that are contemplated by both uh, you know science and mythology. Ooh, this is the kind of stuff that really gets my brain tingling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like we said, we uh, there are various jumping off points from here. So we, we, I guess, we can ask the listeners to chime in. Like, what what would you like next? Do you want us to do? You want us to talk about Osiris uh, in a future episode? Do you want us to to go all in on irrigation technology, or maybe you just want us to go like partially in, like I don't know, knee deep in irrigation technology? <laughs> uh, what's your comfort level? Uh, because it's I was looking uh, through some of it uh, earlier, and it's you know super fascinating. Again, human. Human civilization is kind of a story of irrigation technology, so uh, there's a lot to discuss. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. But in the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you can get that, oh, pretty much anywhere, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you'll find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, we try and uh, slip in an artifact on Wednesdays, listener mails on Monday, and Friday is Weird House Cinema. That's uh, uh, far less science, far less uh, um, depth. Uh, it's all about the weird 
films in those episodes. And then we run a vault episode, a rerun, over the weekend. Uh, so however you get the show, if the platform gives you the power to do so, just rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind. Dot com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.